Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. This time, I'm traveling through central England, visiting one of England's oldest pubs and the medieval world's tallest building, exposing the gangsters behind a colorful legend and discovering more about life on the road in the Middle Ages. Oh, that's lovely. <laughs> oh. I'm starting in the Northeast Midlands in Leicestershire. In the Middle Ages, as now, this was a big area for farming. And in those days, any farmer with anything to sell had to come to market. A livestock market has been held here at Melton Mowbray every Tuesday for more than 900 years. And alongside all of the castles and cathedrals of other towns, the market alone was enough to warrant a place for Melton on this 14th century map. In the Doomsday Book, it's listed as the only market in the whole of Leicestershire. At that time, towns required a royal charter to have the right to run an official market. And Melton's charter was first granted in the 11th century by Edward the Confessor. And the market put Melton Mowbray on the map. Tradesmen came from all over the country selling vegetables, crops, and most importantly, livestock. 109, 50, Woolly number four, Woolly. Four. The market authority charged a toll on every sale a halfpenny for a cow or a horse, a farthing for a sheep or pig, and every stallholder was charged a penny. According to records, the market had 100 stalls at its peak, selling 50 cattle per week and nearly three tons of cheese over the course of a year. The town is still famous for its food today, for Stilton and especially for pork pies. The Melton Mowbray pie can be traced back to the 1820s, but medieval pie makers were putting pork into pastry long before that. Prosperous markets like Melton provided luxury ingredients to the wealthiest of kitchens. And surviving recipes give us an insight into the cuisine of the well-heeled. I'm going to make you a Plantagenet pork pie from the 1390s. Splendid. It's a recipe from the form of curry, which was a book probably written by Richard II's master chef. He tells us to take pork that's been cooked for a couple of hours and grind it, which right. means putting it into a mortar. The medieval food processor, if you like, was a little boy who spent all day with a huge pestle and mortar just grinding things up. And they loved their food to be in puree and pulpy form because they didn't have forks. So 
they'd eat with a, a spoon or their fingers or, or the end of a knife. In the medieval period, they had a range of ready-prepared spice mixtures. This is called poudre douce, and it's got sugar in it, um, ginger. Mm. It's also got something called <laughs> cubebs in it, which is a, you know, a kind of pepper. So it's got I can a taste bit the of pepper. a hit, yeah. yeah. And we're going to put a little bit of that in there. Trade was much more extensive than we believed, and, and yeah. people often think the spices were used to disguise tainted meat. But of course, it was only the very wealthy who could afford spices, and they didn't eat tainted meat. They ate best quality meat. They liked the flavour of these things. It enhanced the flavour. Probably the most dramatic thing that they did that we don't is they put a lot of sugar in with, with meat. Yes, sugar was such an expensive commodity that a lot of people used sweet fruit. And figs are really common in medieval recipes. In one 15th century recipe for this pie, there are figs chopped up and put in with the meat mm -hmm. mixture. If you put that board there, Alex, that's it. We can't have a pie without a, a pastry case. And in the medieval period, the pastry case was called a coffin. It's almost like pottery, because what you're <laughs> making here is a casserole made out of pastry, which right. isn't necessarily going to be eaten by the diners. We're told to make an oval-shaped coffin. So we're going to use the former to create some wall. That does look like a medieval stone coffin, though, the way that you're making e it. Exactly, a sarcophagus. These little things were called pointers or points, and they're what gives the, the, the dish its name because a flan point, which is what this pie is called, is a flan that's got points sticking out of it. Right. Okay? Flan is the word which we get flan from, mm -hmm. and it is an open pie. It's not like a modern Melton Mowbray pie, which is a closed pie. Sure. Wow, it looks a little bit like a crown, or actually, it looks really like a jester's cap, doesn't it? It does, yeah. <laughs> The wealth generated by Melton Mowbray's market was flaunted by the town's parish church, built largely on the profits from livestock and cheese. It was entirely normal for a medieval town to invest much of its wealth in a house of God. And in the neighboring county of Lincolnshire, money from the wool trade helped to create one of the most audacious buildings in the history of architecture. In the Middle Ages, the church dominated almost every aspect of life from birth until death. And everyone was expected to contribute to its upkeep as well, giving at least a tenth of everything that they earned. Failure to give generously could jeopardize your immortal soul. But giving more could ease your way to paradise. With the money that it collected, the church was able to build astonishing cathedrals, like this one. By the time of the map, Lincoln Cathedral dominated the skyline, one of the medieval world's greatest architectural achievements. This towering cathedral is a symbol of God's power here on Earth. And in the Middle Ages, it was also seen as a kind of giant ship that would carry a cargo of the faithful safely through this life and into the next. 
It was a conspicuous reminder to every man, woman and child of the lifelong battle for salvation. Today, the cathedral's most striking feature is its massive central tower, nearly 300 feet high. But the tower is only half the story. We've got here a wonderful model of the cathedral. The central tower was finished up to this level by 1311 and then capped by this absolutely massive spire which effectively doubled the height of the cathedral and would have been visible for miles and miles around. The tip of the spire reached a staggering 525 feet, making this the world's tallest building, surpassing the Great Pyramid of Giza after 4,000 years. For some 250 years, the spire survived, and then, in 1549, it was blown down. We're now standing on the roof of the central tower, which is the tallest place in Lincolnshire. Uh, but in fact, we're actually at the base of the medieval spire. So what happened to the spire that's supposed to be here? Well, it was a timber frame clad in lead, and we think that the timber would have rotted over time, and the frame, which was supporting all of the spire, just started to collapse. <laughs> It was a disaster that tells us much about the way that medieval builders really worked. They had no computer modeling and there were no structural engineers. They were the great experimenters of their day, with nothing to rely on except experience and intuition. These wooden beams were wedged into the tower's main arches during construction and they give us an insight into how the builders worked. They were put in in the 13th century and should have been taken out, but never have been. Obviously, somebody lost nerve and said, is that arch really very stable or not, and left them in. This caution was born of bitter experience. During the building of the cathedral, the central tower had already collapsed several times, the last occasion being in 1237. We had a major collapse here with the tower, um, and then it was rebuilt afterwards. And so this is what rose out of the rubble. This is then, what ultimately. rose out of the rubble. Yes. Instead of scaling back their ambitions, they actually pushed them further, didn't they? Because this is a taller tower than the one that it replaces. Well, tell me about that. What happened when the tower collapsed here, and why do you think it collapsed? Well, they were building beyond their competence at the time. That they just pushed everything a little bit too far, and the structure really wasn't quite strong enough. But that gave the opportunity for them to, you know, quite literally pick themselves up and start again. Mm. And the one thing about Lincoln Cathedral, it's not modest in any <laughs> way. Every time they did something, they went literally over the top. They made it bigger and bigger. I mean, it's one of the largest medieval buildings in Europe. They were making a massive statement. And for two and a half centuries, till the spire was blown down, Lincoln must have seemed to reach up to heaven itself. To the medieval peasant in the fields outside Lincoln, the towering cathedral left no doubt about the supremacy of the church. For theirs was a humble existence, scratching a living from the soil.
on the outskirts of Lincoln is South Common. Like most commons in the Middle Ages, this was called wasteland, land that was just too poor to farm. But back then, wasteland was anything but wasted. It was also an essential source of extra food, fuel, and building materials. For peasants, the valuable resources of these medieval wastelands prompted a crucial development, a system of rights for common people which shaped English law forever. The meagre spoils of the wasteland were shared out amongst the peasants. Each household was granted a right to exploit a particular resource. These rights had names that have long since fallen out of common use. The right of Estovers to collect fallen branches and bracken. Herbage to graze livestock. And turbery to cut peat and turf for fuel. The right to let your pigs forage for acorns was called panage. The right to fish called piscary. And to dig fertile soil, the right of marl. In 1235, new laws were passed to protect common rights. They still apply today, though most people have no idea of the rights they hold. Here on Lincoln's Commons, every city household still has the right to graze horses. But the system's most important legacy is how it dealt with people who broke the law. If you abused your rights, stealing someone else's twigs or grazing too many cattle, you'd receive exactly the same punishment as the last person who committed that crime. This system of precedent underpins English common law to this day. But the security offered by these laws only gave limited protection. Nearby lay lawless forests, and medieval travelers ventured there at their peril. I'm heading west to Nottingham, where the most famous medieval forest of all is shown on the golf map by a single twisted tree. And where even today, there stands a thousand-year-old giant known as the Major Oak. This old oak already would have been quite an impressive specimen at the time that the golf map was made. Today, it's in a country park, but back in the Middle Ages, it was at the center of a vast hunting ground, stretching eight miles wide by 20 miles long. This was the heart of Sherwood Forest. To most of us, the very name is synonymous with one very romantic figure. that Robin Hood and his merry band used this tree as a hideout, but no one's ever been able to prove it. In fact, no one's ever been able to prove that Robin Hood existed at all. What's more, the romantic legend of Robin Hood altruistically stealing from the rich in order to give to the poor conceals a far more brutal reality. The people who ruled the woods were widely feared, anything but the lovable rogues of folklore. They were thugs and gangsters. Robbery and extortion were bread and butter crimes for forest outlaws. 
They would plunder villages and churches and prey upon people traveling along the highways. In the 1330s, this region was terrorized by the Society of James Cottrell, a vicious gang who specialized in kidnap and even murder. After a particularly brutal killing of a local wealthy nobleman, James Cottrell refused to appear at court, and then on the 20th of March, 1331, he was officially outlawed. Anyone who fled the long arm of the law was formally declared an outlaw, banished once and for all from society. Stripped of all civil rights, the outlaw could be killed with impunity. In the Middle Ages, for every convicted felon, there were 10 times that number outlawed. Cotterill was just one whose vicious exploits were relayed in the tales of medieval storytellers. Over the centuries, many legends merged and were widely romanticized to produce the myth we know today. Outlaws drove fear into the heart of medieval England. It can be no surprise that their fearsome reputation fueled such a compelling legend as Robin Hood. Apart from the threat of violent robbery, the ordinary traveler also had to contend with wild boar, packs of feral dogs and wolves. They had no map, no compass, only the name of the next destination. They were exposed to the vagaries of the weather and engulfed in darkness at night. Most people never left their village, except perhaps on a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage to shrines at cities like Lincoln or Derby. After a fearsome trek across country, a weary traveler entering Derby would be welcomed by this reassuring sight, a traveler's bridge chapel. This bridge chapel is one of just six that survive in England. Then, they were beacons of safety greeting travellers on the outskirts of at least 40 medieval towns. In the Middle Ages, this chapel stood in complete isolation, guarding the bridge that offered the only passage over the Derwent and into Derby. The bridge has long since been rebuilt along with much of the chapel, but it still has some of its original features. Through that hole in the wall, you can see the permanent light of a candle, which passers-by would have been able to see as they crossed the bridge. It's called a hagioscope, a holy view. And through it, you can just about glimpse the high altar inside. At night, the flickering light of the candle would have penetrated the darkness, offering a kind of comfort to travelers as they cross the bridge, a kind of invitation to come inside. It was customary for travellers crossing this bridge to pause at this point and to give thanks for their arrival and to pray for a safe onward journey. You'd also make a small donation to pay for the upkeep of the bridge and to provide food and drink for poor travellers. Inside, the priest would say masses for the protection of travellers and for the victims of the perilous highways. But that wasn't all. In the 14th century, this chapel played host to an extraordinary practice which might seem to us a little bizarre. Dozens of medieval chapels housed a spiritual hermit who'd spend their entire life enclosed in a stone cell. Known as anchorites, these hermits were highly revered 
for demonstrating piety through extreme abstinence. Records reveal that the bishop granted permission for a certain Agnes Wally to be enclosed in a stone cell within the walls of this chapel. Sealed up in her stone cell here, Agnes withdrew from the world to lead a life of solitary prayer and contemplation. Food and drink would have been passed through a hole in the wall to her by an assistant. It's amazing to think of her confined in her austere cell with the bustle of the travelers just outside on the bridge. Medieval travelers would have consulted Agnes as a kind of oracle, a figure of piety whose words offered great wisdom and comfort on the journey. The promise of a warm fire, hot food, and a refreshing ale meant that your first stop on arrival would probably be the local inn, like this one in Nottingham. According to legend, there has been a drinking establishment on this site at the foot of the hills beneath Nottingham Castle, at least since 1189. That makes it a pretty good contender for the oldest pub in England. The pub's name refers to Richard I, who rallied his knights at Nottingham before their crusade to the Holy Land. The medieval castle no longer exists, but the inn at the foot of the cliff remains. What's really amazing about this pub is the inside. Its rooms give way to a network of caves that have been carved right out of the rock. The temperature and humidity remain constant, so beer is still stored here. But in the Middle Ages, these unique conditions gave the caves a very special use. As well as for storage, these caves are the ideal temperature for brewing, and especially for the tricky process of malting the grain. So these caves were the ideal spot for the medieval castle's brew house. Malting is where they would spread the grains out on the floor, probably like in the caves here, so it'd be nice and cold. And then they raise the moisture level of the grain to allow germination to start. So how long do you leave it in the pot here over the fire? That would be left in for about an hour and a half, two hours, just simmering, just to let the sugars come out into the water. After that, we will sieve out the barley and add the bittering or flavoring agent. For this particular brew, we are using hyssop, which would have been used amongst other herbs as a bittering agent before hops were introduced into uh, the British Isles. So do you mind if I try some? Sure, go ahead. Hmm. It's quite, it's quite bitter and quite grassy, isn't it? So they would use this instead of hops. Yes, this is what uh, differentiates uh, a medieval ale from today's beer, which uses hops. We'll boil this now for an hour and a half, and from there we're ready to go on to the fermentation process. And so how long does that take? If it was left to ferment for about two days, then it would be known as short ale or small ale. And the alcohol content, we think, might be about one and a half to two percent. The whole reason for this is that the family would drink this as we drink tea or coffee today. And it was one way of ensuring that you had a safe drink, because you wouldn't consider drinking the water. 
the main drink in every English household, ale was an essential. That's lovely. <laughs> <Come on. laughs> in 1267, a new law even ranked it alongside bread as a staple in the medieval diet. Oh, that is really delicious. Nottingham's brewers were ideally placed to exploit the demand. In most places, grain could only be malted in the coolest months of the year. But in the caves, it could be done all year round. Malting became one of the chief occupations in 13th century Nottingham, earning the city a nationwide reputation for its ale, the drink of the medieval commoner. I'm heading south to Warwickshire, where a scheming noble inadvertently paved the way for ordinary people to be represented in Parliament for the first time. To Kenilworth Castle. This is one of the most magnificent ruins of medieval England. Its great central keep was a virtual citadel enclosed within an impregnable wall surrounded by a lake. Whoever lived here became a force to be reckoned with. And in the 13th century, it came into the hands of a ruthless aristocrat of French descent. Simon de Montfort was a man with an extraordinary talent for self-advancement. One of his master strokes was to marry Eleanor, the sister of the king. But Eleanor had taken a vow of chastity immediately following the death of her first husband, so they had to marry in secret. When news of the marriage got out, it caused an international scandal. Despite the outrage, the king made Montfort governor of Kenilworth and presented this castle to the happy couple. But soon, things began to go wrong. Faced with famine and economic depression, Henry III was losing popularity. The opportunist Montfort saw his chance to grab the throne and in 1258 rallied fellow barons against the king. In the civil war that followed, he captured Henry and seized control of the nation. As Montfort's power grew, the barons became increasingly wary of him. To bolster his flagging support, in 1265, Montfort took the unprecedented step of summoning lesser knights and citizens to Parliament. Montfort had, not entirely willingly, given commoners a voice in the governance of their nation. It was a purely selfish move, but it had far-reaching consequences. By allowing commoners into Parliament, Montfort had established an extraordinary new precedent and laid the foundations of democracy in England. But within months of his first parliament, Montfort was dead. An army led by the king's son, the future Edward I, slaughtered Montfort and his men at a battle at Evesham and rescued the king. The royal victory at Evesham was absolute. One chronicler wrote that it was the murder of Evesham. For battle, it was none. The first that Montfort's son learned of his father's fate was when he saw his head mounted on a pike paraded past him. Ironically, when he came to the throne, Edward I 
actually adopted Montfort's ideas when he proposed and implemented his model parliament in 1295. And it was probably for the kings of England that the Gough map itself was made as a statement of their dominion. The Gough map sets out an image of the country as seen through elite eyes. But there's so much more to medieval Britain than the great landmarks shown here. The cities, the castles, the cathedrals. Just as important is what is only glimpsed on the map. The forests, the hamlets, and the villages of medieval England. For this is where the majority of people lived out their lives. Later this evening on BBC4, Professor Robert Bartlett continues his probing of the medieval psyche with the battle between angels and demons for control of our souls. Inside the medieval mind, belief is tonight at nine. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.